Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant, Sarah Agatoni. Agatoni, what news updates should we start off with? Well, first off, the AFCON final, right? African Cup of Nations. Congratulations, Cameroon. Alliance. <laughs> yeah, a great match. And they took it away from Egypt with a last winner by Abu Bakr. Yeah. And yeah. So also fun fact. Uh, so the entire team of Cameroon that was in the cup is actually younger than Paul Bia's presidency. <laughs> I repeat, Paul Bia's presidency. <laughs> well, that's not really hard to do since Paul Bia has ruled Cameroon since 1982. So you can be a pretty old footballer. Uh, and, yeah. still, and still be younger than his presidency. Tea. Talking about presidencies, <laughs> um, Somalia has a new president, Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo. Um, and uh, he's formerly the prime minister of Somalia. Uh, fun fact, mm. he is, in addition to being a citizen of Somalia, like me, he's a citizen of the United States of America. Interesting. Yeah. yeah Dual so citizen. I wonder how that works with presidents, you know? Do you have to give up one or is that... Just like depends on the country. I think I don't know what the rules are in Somalia. I know in yeah. other places they've got rules against doing that. But well, we'll find out what happens, right? Yeah, soon yeah. enough, I'm sure. I also want to make a quick announcement for our listeners in London. The Poetry Translation Center in London is offering a workshop translating Swahili love poems on Valentine's Day. Maybe it's just the Swahili lover in me, but I can't imagine a better <laughs> place to look for love. I say yes, I agree. <laughs> and speaking of Swahili, this week in Rwanda, members of parliament approved a law that would establish Kiswahili as Rwanda's fourth official language. Wow. In addition to Kenya, Rwanda, English, and French, you would have Swahili, which is pretty exciting for me, a yeah. Swahili speaker, and yeah. you, <laughs> a Swahili speaker. Basically, the law would facilitate Rwanda's integration into the East African community, which mm-hmm. is comprised of... Rwanda, Burundi, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Mm-hmm. This is great, like on a whole different level for me. It reminds mm-hmm. me of the conversation we had from our last episode. You guys should check that out. Right. Um, we talk about refugees. And most Rwandans who speak Kiswahili today do so because of the host countries that received them as refugees. So when I moved back to Rwanda, the motherland, mm-hmm. I lived in Yamirambo, this super colorful neighborhood. And Literally more than half of my community spoke Kiswahili. Mm-hmm. And so the immediate effect of that was that I felt at home, even yeah. though I was coming home from another home. So coming to this thing, this culture that was familiar and new, made me appreciate how cultures can be preserved and how they can accept the influence of others. And so in reference to the whole refugee uh, crisis right now right. in different parts of the world, it makes me think that integration is possible. Um, and... While we're speaking about this, you know, shout out to East African countries. I don't think enough is said about how different countries have continued to open their borders and then repatriate citizens of different countries. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Uganda, which just this week, LSE Africa had a blog post about um, how Uganda was a model for um, accepting refugees. Yeah. Um, I don't think enough people, especially listeners maybe in North America, know just how much East African countries and other African countries um, host refugees that are fleeing difficult situations in their home countries. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Swahili in this roundup, and 
That's interesting because actually our guest this week is Melissa Grabois, and she's actually co-directing a summer study abroad program in Zanzibar where students can learn Swahili at all levels. And there's still spaces oh, open. And, and I know, right? I'm going to go study abroad where, oh, well, Zanzibar. Zanzibar. No big deal. <laughs> Just Zanzibar, you know. But before we share that chat with Melissa, I did want to say we're excited because this week mm-hmm. we had our first listener request from Houston, Texas. Our listener wanted recommendations for books for an American middle schooler interested in learning more about Africa. And we put the question out to our Twitter followers. And among the great suggestions we received, Indiana University historian Michelle Moyd suggested Abina and the Important Men, an illustrated graphic history based on an 1876 court transcript of a West African woman who was wrongfully enslaved and who took her case to court. Other books recommended by our listeners and followers, as well as a link to Boston University's Teaching Africa Library. All of those things will be posted on our website, ufahamuafrica.com, by Monday morning, as well as the other things we mentioned today and a few bonus links, too. It's the second week of Black History Month, and we travel back in time to colonial East Africa. Ufahamu Africa's guest this week is Dr. Melissa Gerboyas, a historian and assistant professor at the University of Oregon. Melissa researches science, medicine, health, and disease on the African continent. I talk with her this week about her book, The Experiment Must Continue, which looks specifically into the history of human experimentation and medical ethics in East Africa from 1940 to 2014. Thank you, Melissa, for joining us this week. How did you come to write a book about the ethics of medical experimentation in East Africa? Well, it was kind of a long route. Um, so I started as an undergraduate at UC Davis and had no experience in Africa, had no real interest in history. And I'm a first generation college student. And all of the classes that I wanted to get into the first quarter that I was going to transfer to UC Davis were all full. So I on and then signed up for an African history class. And it was with an amazing professor. And I took all of her classes and I decided to become a history major. And I was going to focus on African history. It was happenstance that I really got trained and interested in African history. And from there, I graduated and did this history degree and decided that I wanted to go to Africa and get some work experience. Mm -hmm. And I went to Tanzania without a job. While I was in Tanzania, kind of looking for a job, deciding how I was going to support myself, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a writer and I'll write stories or magazine articles. And Mm -hmm. I knew there was a global health organization there that I, um, I really kind of disliked. And I thought I would go in and um, interview some people there and write a story about them. In the process of going in and interviewing the director, thinking I was going to write some sort of, I don't know, expose or something, the director offered me a job. I, I didn't have a job and I didn't have very much money and my money was running out real quick. So I, I had to accept, even though I thought that this was a really terrible organization. And, right. and I knew I was interested in in public health and global health issues because I had worked for Planned Parenthood here in the United States, Mm -hmm. but never really on the international side. So yeah, so I got that real firsthand experience doing global health work for a year and I came out really, really dissatisfied and unhappy in a lot of ways and felt like maybe graduate school was the way to learn more about it and that I just didn't understand it well enough. So it was circuitous and then I decided to go to graduate school. And I knew that I wanted to keep studying African history, but within that, I had all these questions about how global health worked and who made decisions and how money flowed and how, why it looked the way it looked in East Africa. Um, And so while I was in graduate school, I I just kind of 
not stumbled into this project because I knew I was interested in it, but it kind of coalesced as something that was very historical in nature, but also very contemporary, that I was always thinking about what was going on in East Africa and the kinds of things I had seen when I had been working there. Right, right. And so can you share maybe some um, experiences or examples you have of your time working in global health um, where you confront some, you know, ethical questions in the course of doing your work, uh, whether it was uh, practicing global health or researching global health? Well, it's interesting because the year that I spent out working for this global health group worked for Population Services International, which is this huge um, DC-based social marketing group. And I, I don't even think I was aware enough while I was working there to really clearly identify a lot of the ethical challenges that I was stumbling through and wading through. I knew that things didn't feel right and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't articulate what was wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And some of that, I think, upon reflection and looking back on it, is about setting priorities. And the idea that our agenda as a group and a lot of the global health priorities I was working on in projects were really set abroad. Mm-hmm. They were set in D.C., they were set in Atlanta, they were set in Geneva, they were initiatives out of Seattle, and we were make, trying to make them locally relevant by translating them into Swahili and not offending anyone by using, you know, terms that were going to be offensive and crude. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it didn't feel it didn't feel right because it feel it felt mismatched sometimes about the needs of local communities and what I heard people saying they wanted and what I had to offer them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt kind of profoundly dissatisfying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a part of your book um, that I think relates to a bigger conversation that um, that we've been having um, about data and measurement. Um, and I wondered if you could read a passage uh, from page 182. Um, while keeping track of mortality and morbidity is important, a focus on numbers can draw attention away from the ethical questions that continue to vex modern malaria control and elimination attempts. What kinds of obligations do researchers have to individual participants or the larger communities where experiments take place? Are there unique responsibilities that come with malaria control or elimination attempts because of the risks of rebound malaria? How can researchers and participants develop a common understanding of what the end really is? This question it really resonates with me, probably because of my own bias from my own research of um, you know trying to trying to not feel like the research that I do on the continent is neo-colonial, that it's this mm-hmm. other thing where like I get to go and extract data and use it for purposes to further my own career. Right. And mm-hmm. there are ways that researchers go about trying to put a quick fix on it. Like, Oh, well I do a dissemination exercise after I'm done so that people can learn from my research. And, you know, I think some of these, some of these efforts that scholars are taking are useful and helpful and they're certainly better than they've been in the past. I just wonder who gets to ask the questions um, mm-hmm. and design the research and decide what should be prioritized and what the end goals really are. I think it's a really tough question for social scientists and humanists that are going in and doing political science projects and anthropological projects and historical projects because sometimes our end goals are very amorphous or they, they don't easily translate sometimes into... Mm-hmm direct benefit 
for the communities that have aided us in our research, that have right. allowed us to interview them or have allowed us to observe them or integrate into their daily life. Mm-hmm. It's really tricky, and I don't think there's easy answers to it. And I think in some ways that it's every researcher's needing to really think critically about it and grapple individually about what am I offering and what am I aiding. And sometimes I think for social scientists, it's indirect. And that it's working with policymakers or it's making our work more well-known to people who are in positions of authority and power in ways that we are not. Um, Because I go back to East Africa and I share my book and I share my findings with local residents, but I'm not necessarily telling them anything they don't already know. And my book in and of itself is not changing their life. I mean, it changed my life in amazing and great ways. And I'm appreciative for all the people who took time to invest in me. Right. But the findings are only meaningful to them. I think if I put those findings in the hands of people who can actually do something to change conditions in really tangible ways. And for me, those are people who work in the global health industry and who work in the field as field workers and make decisions about how do we design this project and how do we explain consent to people and what does real benefit mean to someone who's poor in East Africa? And how do I explain the ending of an experiment to somebody who might not really understand what an experiment is in a biomedical sense? Hmm. So that's I maybe that's me dodging <laughs> um, and uh, you know skipping out of my own ethical obligations. But I, I'm not sure. I mean, I feel sometimes at a loss as a historian that. Unfortunately, I go back and I tell people, this is what I've collected and I produce this history, but uh, I, I don't always know. It feels in some ways the things that I'm writing about of medical research and public health interventions that are ongoing, I want to affect the way those things are done. And that means that I have to be interacting with a different population right. that is making those decisions. Right. And so let's, you know, in a hypothetical world where you could encounter those people who are making people in these positions of power and, and, and influence, and, and you could, you know, offer suggestions to them, you know, based on the work that you've done, are there any key takeaways that you would, that you would offer? I mean, something tangible for them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that on the one side, as a historian really loves anthropology, I would say you need to read this book because you need to be aware of these stories. And the Mm -hmm. fact that when you ask people about medical research today, what they want to tell you about is something that happened 40 or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really meaningful in shaping how interventions should be thought about today. That I mean, the global health industry based out of Western Europe and the United States is really ahistorical. Maybe we think back to the last project we personally worked on. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have a general sense that, yeah, our attempts to eradicate malaria have been happening for a while, but this one is different. There's always a sense that what we're doing right now is, um, you know, fundamentally unique and new and distinctive from what went on in the past. And so as a historian, I would want to come in and tell those people, actually, we have a long history and all of these diseases that you think we're making this brand new first approach at tackling this brand new experiment. There's usually a deep history on the science side of things we've tried, but even perhaps more important is on those who are on the receiving end, those who are subjects and those who are participants in these medical research projects. They also have a long history of interaction and knowing about that a is a really important starting point. So you're not working, you're not working with the naive population. You're not working with a virgin population in any way. They've been in contact with the biomedical system 
for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I think that's one part of it that I would start with. And then another part is thinking very concretely about how people understand medical research and that does not, one of the things I discovered in doing oral interviewing for my book was that most people, even when they were well-educated in East Africa, did not define and understand medical research in the same way that researchers talk about it, in the same way that someone who's working in the industry would say, well, it's a way to collect data and hopefully get generalizable conclusions, uh-huh. that it's about data and it's about answering hypotheses. People didn't understand that. They felt like it was an intervention meant to benefit them. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's very common. And even here in the United States, we have therapeutic misconception. So the idea that people regularly mistake um, the idea that they are participating in an experiment and it's meant, it's designed to benefit them personally right. rather than the experiment is designed to generate data that can be used to answer important questions and hopefully get us closer to solving some, you know, important problems. Right. right. So this disconnect is really profound. And if it means that it jeopardizes consent, (laughs) so the basic components of consent laid out in the Nuremberg code, laid out in European um, guidelines, laid out in U.S national law is that consent has to be informed, it has to be understanding, and it has to be voluntary. So we can inform people by giving them a consent form translated into Swahili. We can inform them by reading that consent form in Swahili. But if they don't understand what we're saying and can't accurately describe back um, the kind of experiment they're participating in with the commensurate risks and benefits that go with it, that's not really voluntary consent. And it jeopardizes the idea that they're autonomously choosing to participate. Right. So that really worries me. And I think that there's a lot of research going on that is stumbling at that step, that we're formally checking all the boxes we need to, to properly consent someone, but that we're not hewing to the real meaning of what that rule is supposed to be about. You've mentioned Swahili a couple of times uh, in the interview, and uh, and what one other thing that I liked about your book was that it includes a Swahili glossary. I'm curious to learn more about uh, your Swahili glossary. How did how long did you study Swahili, and what resources or experiences did you rely on for compiling uh, the glossary that you have in the book? Yeah, so Swahili was super important to this project because um, I did all of my interviewing in Swahili, and I often had an older male do introductions for me and sit in and interviews to help in case I got confused. But I felt like I learned a lot by just sitting and talking with people about my project, sometimes through formal interviewing and sometimes through just describing what I was interested in with people I knew and met. Mm-hmm. So I had studied, started studying Swahili when I moved there um, after I was an undergrad. And then when I went to graduate school, I studied for four years in grad school at Boston University. And then I spent summer back out in Zanzibar at the State University of Zanzibar and did a really intensive program. And then when I moved back out for my dissertation research, I lived in East Africa for another full year and had a great Swahili instructor who I worked with regularly. Mm-hmm. And even here at the UL, I mean, I did transcripts of all my interviews and got them typed up and 
did all the translations of things. And here at the UO, I have a really fantastic Kenyan colleague who's our Swahili instructor. Mm -hmm. And he worked with me a lot. And whenever I would have questions, would help me kind of parse the idiomatic language. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really important to to, um, include the glossary in the book because so much of what people expressed to me and what came through in the narratives of the book were expressed to me in Swahili and the terminology felt felt relevant. In fact, our listeners might not know this, but you actually co-direct a Swahili study abroad program. You take students to Zanzibar to the is it to the State University of Zanzibar? It is. So it's the same place that I studied Swahili when I was a graduate student is where I'm taking students back now. Right, and you do that each summer. We do. And I actually run it with my colleague, um, Mokaya Bosire, and he is my Kenyan colleague here at the UO. And we take out a set of students every summer and we have eight weeks um, with them. And they study intensive Swahili every day, every morning with the instructors at the State University of Zanzibar. And then they come to us two afternoons a week and we co-teach a class on Swahili culture and history. So it's a really great it's a great experience. We have a lot of fun with it. And Zanzibar is such a fabulous place to be able to introduce students to East Africa and talk about kind of the cosmopolitan international connections with the Indian Ocean and the mainland. It's a really great place. Yeah. And I understand there's still some slots for this coming summer. Is that right? We do. We have a few spots still available and it includes, it's not, it's open to any students across the United States at both the undergrad and graduate level. And you don't need to have any experience with Swahili. So actually, if you're just interested, you could do the whole first year of Swahili at the State University in Zanzibar. And if you're lucky enough to have flash funds, we, the program also allows students who have summer class um, scholarships to use them with our program. That's great. That's great. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share about your book before we leave you today? I guess um, the only thing I would say is that I felt really profoundly kind of honored to be able to write about this topic and that it felt like a really heavy topic to work on at times, Mm -hmm. but one that also felt very important and relevant for ongoing research and global health work that's going on in East Africa. So that the kinds of things that I did when I was out in the field working as a historian, I just think that these things are so important to communicate kind of the narratives to policymakers now and the sense that there's a deep history in the region of contact and exchange when it comes to biomedicine and medical research is something that I'm really um, committed to helping help workers be aware of. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us this week, and uh, I hope we'll we'll hear from you again soon. Thanks so much, Kim. I appreciated it. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. I just want you to see through me and dream. Just ahead of Valentine's Day, we leave you this week with Runaway Love a song by Nicole Musoni, a Canadian singer-songwriter with roots in East Africa. We'll share more of her music on the blog. Thanks for listening. 
Until next week, Safari Salama. you